I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEP's Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with authors with new books in the field. We're joined today by Anne-Marie Belluni of the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, she's the author of a new book, When Blame Backfires, Syrian Refugees and Citizen Grievances in Jordan and Lebanon, which is brand new from Cornell University Press. Uh, Anne-Marie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us about the book. What made you want to write this book? And what do you think the major original contribution of the book is going to be? Scapegoating. So we expect scapegoating in Jordan and Lebanon all the time. And throughout history, it generally works. Here are the Syrians, a really good group to scapegoat. And they were not being scapegoated in the traditional sense. So you were, so you were expecting to see something and you just didn't see it. Yeah, so usually these governments use all kinds of groups, the communists, the Baathists, the Palestinians, the uh, Israelis, all the foreigners, to blame the Iraqi refugees at that time, to blame for their faults. Oh, we can't provide this. We have a water shortage because of the Iraqis. Um, this problem with the government is because of another group. And they blame them for all their lack of state capacity. So here you have an overwhelming number of Syrians, over a quarter of Lebanon's population, and at least in 10% of Jordan's probably. They're first and second in the world for refugees per capita. And they're foreigners, and a lot of them are poor, and they came in, in masses. And there is terrorism problems back in Syria. So you have, they have all the elements that you would expect states to be able to successfully deflect blame from themselves onto that minority or foreign group. So when you say blame, like blame for what exactly? Lack of water, lack of electricity, um, waste not being picked up, budget deficits, aid not getting to the people, austerity measures having to be put in place because of deficits all kinds of mainly economic and resource things. Um, and it was not because the, the Syrians were well-liked in these countries. After the beginning, they were welcomed very well by the Lebanese and Jordanians in the beginning. Then the honeymoon period ran out and the numbers got very, very large. And the Jordanians and Lebanese universally started to blame things on the Syrians, yes oh yeah, they're using too much water, et cetera. But they didn't do the second part of scapegoating. The second part of scapegoating is when you basically dissolve responsibility from the state or government for that problem. So you blame Syrians and you go back to your couch. Oh, it's all their fault. Oh, if they weren't here, everything would be better. But they didn't. Instead, they blamed the government, said, you need to provide us housing. You need to provide us better schools. You need to provide us water, electricity. You need to fix the problem. The Syrians may have caused them, but you need to fix them. And they mobilized, and they began mobilizing against the government. And this is a dynamic you usually don't see. Scapegoating is usually successful in shutting people up. And so let's walk through this a little more context for those who aren't as familiar with the two cases. The Syrians began coming in in large numbers in 2011 and 2012. Mm -hmm. where, where do they go uh, in, in these two countries? Uh, do they go into camps? Do they go into, into cities? How, how, how do they go into these societies? 
So they go across the borders and the first thing they do is live with anybody that they know or are related to. So the towns across the borders get the most people and those tend to be the poorer regions. They're not the capital cities. So they go to um, the west into Lebanon, into areas in the, the Beqa and north, Tripoli, Akkar, first. They go to, uh, uh, to northern Jordan, right across the border, and create such numbers that the UN makes a camp where, uh, in a town called Zatari, next to the village. Zatari is very poor. And so you have this camp the UN begins providing. Lebanon forbids camps because of their history with the Palestinians. They believe the lesson from the Palestinians is that camps are going to create armed groups. So they don't allow camps. That's not a correct lesson, but that's not a correct um, conclusion. But uh, they do it. So the Syrians make what we call informal tented settlements. Basically, people call them camps. They just set up tents in places. And this is the poor Syrians. The richer ones, the middle class, go live with friends, relatives, etc., or rent apartments. That creates another problem. In Jordan, we find that the Syrian refugees were able to rent apartments and the landlords forced them to pay more than they asked from the Jordanians because they had no alternative, one. Second, the UN and the international community did some very stupid moves, which they acknowledged later on, which was they just handed Syrians money to pay for rent. So the Syrians had this money, they grabbed a couple families, moved into an apartment, and landlords kicked out the Jordanians to rent at higher prices to the Syrians. So you've got a lot of Jordanians homeless because landlords were renting to the Syrians. Um, another effect you got was people seeing truckloads of water being moved to the refugees when they themselves didn't have any water. Uh, this is there's, all, lot, there's lots of reasons then for people, if you're an average Jordanian or Lebanese, there's a lot of reasons to kind of look at this and be jealous oh, yeah. or resentful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Here you see they're getting it. But the response, so the, the first example, the housing example, the Jordanians, they could have gone and beaten up the Syrians or anything. But my argument is that scapegoating doesn't work in these instances because these are grievances that are crucial to daily life. They're not grievances you can be content to sit on your couch or sit at home and complain about and have a drink about and just move on. They needed housing. So what they did instead is uh, some of them sent up a, set up a, a tent camp. They called it a Jordanian refugee camp, displaced camp actually. And they demanded from the government that it provide them housing. So here you have people who are clear that the fault is the Syrians and their minds are clear. It's actually the landlords, right? And um, they're clear that the Syrians are at fault, but the Syrians can't provide them housing. And later on, the Syrians can't provide them water. They can't provide electricity. 
So these demands, then you can see the false nature of them because deflecting blame onto the, the, uh, the Syrians away from the government, people can see right through that because they still need those goods to be provided. So they prioritize solutions over the psychological satisfaction of scapegoating and blaming somebody else for all your problems. Now, before we get into uh, some of those things, why don't you tell us a little bit about the research that you did for this book? Um, and because I think there's some really interesting stuff that you did, which I think uh, will help to give some context to the, the observations that you're making. So the first thing I did was I went around and spoke with a lot of international aid providers um, and um, asked them questions, etc. The second phase was me going to a lot of these areas with locals, the border areas with, um, with, uh, between Syria and Lebanon, between Syria and Jordan. You could actually see Syria. You saw the houses that had their windows broken whenever there was a bombing in Syria. That was how close they were, right on the border. So I started speaking with people, a lot of, local people, because I've done research in these countries before, I could do it in Arabic. And um, I had locals from that area who would host me. Um, one time I had a focus group of all women, young, uh, young women, college age who were studying to be teachers, and then their relatives who were older and already teachers. And that, that was up at the border, Akkad, which is a very uh, poor town above Tripoli in Lebanon. So I was able to get in and talk to these people and find out how, what they thought. And it's interesting to me, actually, that, um, you know, your earlier work on, on welfare provision um, in, in these countries actually positioned you quite in, an, in a quite unusual way um, relative to a lot of people who were coming at this primarily from the, the, from the perspective of the Syrian war or even from refugee concerns. You already had a deep background in these questions of social welfare, social services, and, and, serv and, um, and these kinds of economic issues um, that, you, you, you're, that you're talking about. Exactly. So what I found before is that, and I, I firmly believe, is that these daily issues of social services and welfare for individual people's lives are political, that this is how people live and how they make their reality work adds up to a larger political outcome. And we usually focus on the larger state level. But here I'm looking at the grassroots to see what's motivating them to demand change or not. And then that will become political. And I think that's a big part of the story that you're telling is that, you know, these services and, um, and, and resources and the like, that's one of the ways that the average citizen encounters the state in a regular capacity. And that encounter doesn't begin in 2011. Exactly, exactly. So it's very, most of these issues, almost all of them, the housing one is a bit different, but almost all these issues pre-existed the Syrians. And they had problems, Lebanon has had problems in electricity for a very long time. Jordan has water problems. When I lived there before the Syrians, the water would go brown and it would stop and we wouldn't have water for days. But people generally, even a new problem, um, an old problem, new problem, they will focus on whoever they can blame it on. 
So in the beginning, yes, they did start to blame the Syrians. And then they demanded and needed solutions and turned to the governments. Uh, and this is one way that one key way that both states that are not very good providers of services interact with the states. Well, let, let's talk about that a little bit about, you know, so you talk quite a bit about state capacity. Um, and so one of the issues that I find so interesting is the intersection between the low capacity of these states with the international aid prov providers and, and the ways that those two intersect with each other. Uh, talk, talk us through that a little bit and what you see the effects of, of the way international aid to the refugees was being provided. Yeah, that's a, thank you for that. Uh, expectations changed. So here, these are two states that basically only provide social services through family groups, kinship groups, political parties, religious groups. Most of it is clientelistic. If not all, Islamists have their own versions of, of welfare provision. And you get the Syrians being provided by the UN without having to join one of these organizations and be part of it and pledge their allegiance, blah, blah. This coincides with the European model of the state that I heard repeated over and over again in Jordan and Lebanon, more so in Lebanon. People had an image of what the state should be in their minds, but the states had kept saying, we can't do this because we don't have money. So here this people comes in and they get those social welfare goods. So they both show that states can provide social welfare goods without clientelism and, and belonging in small groups and having to pledge allegiance, et cetera. And those aid groups give significant amounts of money to the governments and it's well publicized. Right. The, Jordan keeps saying, we got 10 million this, we got this money from here, we got this money from, to prop themselves up. And they said, it's all for you guys. And people are saying, well, where is it then? You no longer have an excuse that you don't have money to provide these things. We have an idea what our state should be. And you are not, for, and we can see it being provided right over there across the street. And you're not providing it. So there's a sense that foreigners are getting better health care, um, uh, better water, better services than domestic citizens. And that violates this kind of compact, this implicit compact of the state that a national should be treated preferentially by the government, that they are a member of the nation and therefore they have rights. So the idea of rights expanded. It didn't contract. We see in many states when immigrants come in, the demands for social welfare contract. They shrink and people stop demanding more and more better and better healthcare because they think those foreigners are gonna benefit also. Here you get the exact opposite. The foreigners are already benefiting from their own. These people want in. So Lebanese and Jordanians start protesting and saying, no, we want, we want to be treated like Syrians. 
Uh, we got stories of Lebanese saying that their husband was Syrian, of nurses whispering in women's ears saying, say you're Syrian, you'll be treated better. Um, many stories of being passed up, Lebanese being passed up while Syrians were being uh, treated. There's even a story of a Palestinian little girl, uh, this is a true story, who died. And the Lebanese universally blamed the government for not providing welfare for her, which is a completely different, it, it shows that the the boundaries of the national of the citizenship are expanding because all of a sudden Palestinians were considered like Lebanese. And that's a very new thing. If it's how far it goes, we'll see. She was a three-year-old girl and there's lots of PR for that. But they blame the state for not having paid for her medical care when Syrians do get their medical care paid for. So here you have demands for universal welfare and healthcare in Lebanon that you didn't have before. Now, one of the things which is, you know, as you kind of follow this story through then, is that, especially in Lebanon, I guess to a lesser extent in Jordan, but definitely in Lebanon, you do see state uh, policies towards the Syrian refugees uh, taking a pretty dark turn, especially over the last couple of years. Um, and I'm curious how that intersects with this kind of popular level that you're describing. So there's two phases to the, uh, the repressive policies toward the Syrians. The first one is pretty much before 2015, around 2015. This is the time when the compacts, the so-called compacts in Europe are being negotiated. Right before that, or right at that time for Lebanon, the states started to withdraw health care from the Syrians started in Jordan. They started to uh, be much more repressive. And this was basically, you can call it blackmail, you can call it many other things, but they were trying to pressure the international community to provide aid. And basically saying, if you want us to help the Syrians, you're gonna to have to pay for us. So that succeeded. And then policies started to loosen up. Syrians were allowed back in school in Lebanon and Jordan. Um, job opportunities opened up, although they never really got uh, filled uh, as part of the compacts. The state scapegoating did and state blame. It's sort of everything is due to the Syrians. Uh, every time the, the King of Jordan speaks in the international phase, he says, look, we are suffering because the Syrians, it's all their fault and we have such terrible conditions because of them, doesn't say that these conditions pre-existed the Syrians. They were having economic problems and unemployment before. This just pushed on those fault lines and right. exacerbated them and shone a spotlight on them so that people can really clearly see these are the problems in our state capacity and our state economy. So um, those at that phase, you got many people buying into it. You did get violence against Syrians. You, you definitely did, especially in Lebanon. There's some uh, horrendous episodes. But then when it came to actually doing something or demanding something, still the demands were for the government to respond. So it, they still went back and thought the Syrians can't fix our problem. We still have to blame the government. Well, so 
actually, before I want to come back to that, but um, there's one uh, thing I wanted to make sure we didn't um, that we didn't forget as when we're talking about the the international role, and that's the kind of unique uh, place of the Palestinians in Syria, and how they enter into Jordan and Lebanon um, in in a very different way because of the well, you can tell us why. <laughs> Yeah, so um, Palestinians are technically under UNRWA, uh, the UNRWA, and uh, they have jurisdiction. They do, the UNHCR does not have jurisdiction over the Palestinians in those countries. In other countries, if Palestinians are found in other countries, they can, because they're not previously covered. The UNHCR was formed, uh, UN High Commissioner for Re Refugees was formed after UNRWA. And it specifically says that it only deals with, ref with people who are not previously served by another UN agency, which means it exempts the Palestinians who are being served in the surrounding neighboring states of, toward Israel. But UN, uh, the UNRWA has a very different mandate than UNHCR. UNHCR's primary mandate is to return, repatriate refugees. That's the primary solution it sees. But for UNRWA to advocate returning Palestinians to Israel is impossible because Israel's also a member of the UN. That will not fly. Um, and a very powerful member with powerful allies. So, and the US was the primary backer of UNRWA, which supported Israel. So. UNRWA was a, is a not very well-funded organization that aims to retrain Palestinians and find them jobs in the country where they are. It does not aim to return them. So the mandates are very, very different. Um, and no secondary education in UNRWA is paid for. UNHCR, though, it really tries to return people to find them citizenship. So when they come into Lebanon and Jordan, they're covered immediately by UNRWA, as they were in Syria. They're allowed in for a little bit, for the first couple years, under certain conditions. Then they stop being allowed in, completely, under, in both countries. So Palestinians then cannot legally enter either country and be covered. If they do enter, they would have to try to get help from UNRWA, but definitely they cannot register through UNHCR. And so they're not considered in those number counts. So you end up with like these multiple categories uh, of, of Syrians who are entering and Palestinians who are entering, and then the, the Jordanians or Lebanese who are already there. And they're all vying for similar services and resources, but through different channels for each of them. It's a very, it's a very interesting institutional situation. Yeah, and it's very confusing. There's uh, stories of a Syrian woman I think, who married a Palestinian man, and UNRWA wouldn't cover her, uh, and UNHCR wouldn't cover him. Um, and they, because it's still set up to mimic the Arab family organization, they were trying to change that, but I don't know if anyone succeeded yet. Uh, so patriarchy in terms of it, she goes to the man's, uh, man's agency. And that made both of, they were left out of both of them, basically. Um, uh, so it's very confusing, yeah.
Now, but what's, one thing which is interesting here is that you can certainly understand uh, the reasons for um, Jordanian or Lebanese resentment um, uh, of Syrians on, on these issues. And yet, and, as you describe in the book, the Syrians themselves are living under awful conditions. Um, yeah. And so it's kind of interesting, the, the perceptions there and how that plays out, where Syrians, I think, might not see themselves as objects of envy after being displaced and, you know, struggling in the schools and psychological problems and, uh, and, and everything else which comes with being uh, refugees and displaced persons. And I'm curious how much of that you, you saw, that kind, of, um, that kind of dynamic between Syrians who consider themselves to be the victims, where the Jordanians, Lebanese, now seeing themselves as secondary victims. Yeah, so you definitely see that especially there's envy, especially amongst the lower classes in Lebanon and Jordan. So they're saying we've been suffering all along and here these foreigners come in and you give them goods. Here I've been poor and uh, one story of a grandmother who lives in Zatari village right across from Zatari camp and sees the trucks going by and passing her by every day with food, water, tents, clothes, all that kind of stuff. And she's sitting in a dilapidated quasi-tent, raising her, I think, nine grandchildren and two children and a huge family. And she has no help. And she's just waiting for people to come help her. And so there's this idea of the deserving versus the undeserving poor, right? The Syrians, oh, the refugees, they're suffering, they came, they're poor, they can't make mm -hmm. a living. They deserve to be helped. Whereas the poor Jordanians and Lebanese, they don't deserve to be helped. We have stories of agents, international agencies and NGOs that are tasked specifically with helping Syrians. So they provide uh, kits for newborn babies. In Northern Jordan, there was a, a package that the one NGO provided to Syrian women who were about to give birth. There are all kinds of things that they could use for the baby. Well, that NGO was standing, was sitting right next to an NGO for Jordanian women. Hmm. Jordanian women came over and said, well, where are ours? We're about to have a baby. Why can't we get one? And they refused. They said, no, these are only for Syrians. An even stronger example is where there was an NGO helping uh, Syrians drink clean water in Lebanon. Well, none of Lebanon's water is clean. Nobody can drink it. So they had these devices that you could use to clean water and they went to these refugees in this one town, northern Lebanon, and were distributing them right next to Lebanese who then still had to drink dirty water. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was recognized later on by the international community and they started to go, whoops. Uh, they gave Syrians, Syrian children, brand new backpacks, beautiful backpacks. And this is in poor area. The Jordanian children beat them up and stole the backpacks. Uh, this was completely predictable. Um, it's terrible, but it's predictable. And so there is, are these jealousies. In every refugee case, uh, that almost every refugee case we know of, let's say that, there are some locals who pretend to be of the refugee nationality in order to get in. And UN workers know this. 
they know there's probably some Jordanians mixed in there who pretend to be refugees. We see this in Africa, we see it because they want the goods that the Syrians have. And for some of them, it is a step up, very few. But middle-class complaints also, that isn't just mere complaints. It's, it's, yeah. it's, um, it's like people saying, well, they have a Cadillac, um, right. uh, uh, they're living on welfare, but they have a Cadillac, so they're living high off, you know, and uh, they're living well, living better than me, because they don't, you know, and all those kinds of stereotypes. There's one thing, which uh, maybe one last question is that, you know, going into this, um, you know, I might have expected to see differences in Jordan and Lebanon because Jordan is generally seen as having a higher degree of state capacity, a more effective state than Lebanon in a lot of ways. And yet you see, it seems like you observe similar types of dynamics in terms of your scapegoating question. And I'm curious if that means that you think that this is more of a generalizable phenomenon, that scapegoating is more difficult over this type of issue? Or is there something that makes Jordan and Lebanon respond in the same way, despite having these prior differences? I think there is something general about this. I think that if you don't have water and your neighbor stole it from you and he drank it or used it up and there's a limited amount of water to be had and you have to feed your family, what's your priority? Do you go and beat him up? Or do you go get the water? I think there are some goods that are, some grievances are just different from others. They are more pressing on our daily lives and social movement theory has um, uh, the, the disruption of the quotidian, these other kinds of theories that deal with basically a disruption of your daily life uh, that you cannot continue living as you would because this good was either necessary for survival or culturally necessary. And some other people have been doing some work on that. Uh, corn in Mexico, for example. If you had tried to scapegoat that, I don't think that would have worked. Um, the other thing is that Jordan does have better capacity. Absolutely. So one thing we saw is a change in the demands. Those specific demands, the same trajectory happened, very specific demands, electricity, water, trash, schooling, housing, very, very specific local demands that then moved up and became larger movements and escalated into anti-systemic uh, corruption charges against the regimes that had pre-existed, but they became more powerful adding in all these new groups, joining groups that previously wouldn't have been in the same protest with each other. So that had escalated. But the original grievances in Jordan started to subside in the areas that the refugees lived because the Jordanian government did concentrate a lot of its money and directed the international community to do whatever it had to do to get water into northern Jordan. And um, now Southern Jordan, no, they have, Southern Jordan still has problems with water, but Northern Jordan, where the refugees are, the, the government really focused and did improve um, and did start cracking down on people who steal water. And there's examples that are pretty outrageous, like a mile long of piping people stealing water from the public um, source. So um, 
so Jordan did improve. And I think part of the opinion toward the Syrians that's muted now, they're not as angry at the Syrians in Jordan, might be due to the fact that their lives have improved and they are seeing improvements. And they do see Mercy Corps, for example, put in water all over Northern Jordan. And they came there because the Syrians are there. So their people are seeing some small improvements. This this is really interesting. And it's, um, it's, um, I think, an issue that's uh, not going to go away either in uh, either in these countries or globally speaking. Um, I want to thank uh, Anne-Marie Belloni for joining us to talk about her new book, When Blame Backfires, Syrian Refugees and Citizen Grievances in Jordan and Lebanon, just out from Cornell University Press. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.